what actually made you write the book in the first place? Um, well, I suppose granted a bit of time uh, in the in the first instance, you know, to sort of reflect on things during COVID and there was all kinds of other distractions going on. But you know, we haven't been able to get Grenfell out of our minds uh, at all since the tragedy happened. And, and I suppose having had the responsibility of dangerous structures since 2005, there's been literally hundreds. I mean, literally hundreds of, um, of dangerous structures that I've responded to. And so it becomes part of your career. You know, and I've been doing this now since the, the late 80s. Um, and there's lots to share. And I, and I really truly believe in the importance of sharing, you know, experience, recommendation skills, that, that others might just find intriguing, might actually benefit from. It could help save some people and you, you just never know. So I, I found myself with some time to do it. And um, I sat down and started to research what might, out, might already be out there and looking through BS6187, there was nothing in there that was specifically aligned to, to dangerous structures. Um, I was also conscious of, you know, having been out and, and done hundreds of uh, incidents, you meet all manner of people on the on the, the local authority side, district surveyors as they're referred to in London, but building you know building control officers around the country, and some of those poor people end up putting their hand up for doing the the sort of the out of hours shift, and something tragic happens like a big fire or an explosion or a collapse or whatever, and they find themselves out in the field um, with a responsibility that they've never held before and. You know, it, it occurred to me that we need to get some consistency. It's not, it didn't occur to me, it's absolutely obvious. We need to get some consistency. And and so I thought to myself, well, I'll do some research and see, what out, see what's out there in terms of a training manual and, and what have you. And I couldn't find anything at all. And it's, it's funny because in that initial search, which is at the beginning of 2020, I couldn't find anything. But having, you know, taken the name Dangerous Structure and it's been a working title all the way through the process of writing the book. I then, literally about three months ago, book fin I finished the book in 2020, but about three months ago, I just did some a couple of hours on the internet looking around to see what I could find in bookshops and what have you. And I actually found the first book about Dangerous Structures, which is um, written by a guy called George Blagrove in 1896. And this book is the first edition, and it's the first record I can find anywhere of anybody that's written a book about dangerous structures. And it's actually a book for practical men, it's titled, um, dated 1896. And right at, the, right at the front of it, he makes an introduction to the responsibility of you know, attending a dangerous structure. And he refers to it as, as similar to that as a professional um, doctor or surgeon that's got to make a decision about something that's in a very bad way, in inverted commas. Um, and the decisions that you make are so important. And the, the book is, you know, it's, it's, it's thick. But he made, he came out with a second edition in 1906, which is this one, which is, there was obviously some, some more information to be shared and it was obviously quite, quite popular amongst its readers. It's not anything like the book that I've written. It's more about you know what a beam does, what a girder does, what a foundation does, how peers work, and how you know trusses work in a roof space and what have you. Um, so I suppose I'm getting to the point, Mark, that there's never been too much written about it, and the, the the code of practice for our industry doesn't do too much on it. And so there's an awful lot of people out there that get the responsibility for turning up to something that's fundamentally undermined or struggling to stand up. 
and they've got the they've got great responsibility to bring it down safely or support it safely or protect infrastructure from it so there needed to be some sort of guide and so i thought well, if I, I start with um my experiences and then put in my rationale that the you know, sort of the procedural that i follow um it might be something that could get out amongst our, not only our industry but also you know the local boroughs and the the local authorities even the emergency services um, and so, you know, search and rescue groups around the country and, and believe it or not we've had some inquiries and sent books right away across the world at the moment so that's that's really where it came from. We'll get to the details of what's actually in the book in a second but one of the things that struck me was you mentioned in the book that you are actually dyslexic. I, I've, I've written a couple of very small and very poorly sold books in my time and I write for a living. How do you get by um, writing a book when you're actually dyslexic? Um, a lot of rereads, a lot, an awful lot of concentration. Um, I would say 90% of this book was written between 3am and 6am um, when I can sort of really sit down and focus on it. Um, yeah, I mean, dyslexia is not an uncommon thing. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of children, don't even know that it's dyslexia that they suffer from and they, you know, they get put to the bottom of a class and they and they struggle through life. And it is actually something that you, you can work and deal with to, you know, to read a book on... Uh, is a challenge to read a book out loud is almost impossible and I, and I avoid it at all costs um, but what was important to me about the, about writing the book and, I, and, and, I, and I, I have to be absolutely honest with you I toyed with this um, so much as to whether I should include that within the book because it is a vulnerability and it, or it feels like it's a, a perceived as a vulnerability it's something that you're not very good at but it was important to me in conclusion when I came to sort of the, the final decision to, to go ahead and print that part of the book because I want to, I didn't, you know, there, we, there, there are many, many egos out there in business and in our industry and in, in, in every walk of life and I didn't want this book to be perceived as, a, as an ego trip but more importantly I wanted it to be a, a booster for people's confidence that, you know, I've, I've sat on a machine, I've, I've pushed the barrel, I've, I've been there, you know, in, early in the morning doing the horrible jobs and then late at night doing the bookwork. If you work hard, you can you can do well and, and this, it was important that I, I showed the reader who I was and, and where I got my, my sort of, um, my grounding if you like. Now, very early in the book, um, you outline some of the key challenges that you face in an emergency demolition situation. And one of those challenges, you say, is emotion. I, I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. But what do you mean by that, the, the, the challenge of, of dealing with emotion? Well, you know, every single incident is, is different. Every single incident um, it, it generally follows uh, some form of tragedy, whether it's you know, a, a, a collapsed uh, excavation or a, a fire, or you know, some, some shoddy building work, whatever it may be that you turn up to uh, try and remediate, somebody's been affected. And so, whether it's somebody at the ticker tape as the as the area is being cordoned off, or somebody within the team that needs to get to somewhere urgently because of information or uh, some some infrastructure that's been affected by what you're doing. So wherever you wherever you turn up, and and and, and everybody's looking at each other until. The guy that's got the responsibility is here so as soon as you walk into that environment you're the guy that's going to bring resolution and the urgency the emotion is is then really pushed onto you and it's it's it's, it's one of the most important things that you have to learn to manage is actually the 
the emotion of others that are, that are gonna, you know, impose some peer pressure or impose some emotional um, importance on making the decision too quickly. And the last thing you can do, to make a decision to change the dynamic of something that's already weakened without the props already beside you, ready to put them in place, that if something doesn't go quite according to plan, is a, is a mistake. And so you've got, to, you've got to really just sort of step back from the emotion and look at uh, what's in front of you before you make a decision to go through a set of stages that will come to a point where you can at least hold again and, and, and give it some thought. And that's not, um, you know, taking away the fact that, you know, you could have persons trapped um, or, or missing. Um, there, there are all kinds of conditions that you've got to take into account, you know, none greater than Grenfell and the emotion of, of that absolute tragic situation there. Um, but equally, there are hundreds of very capable and keen and willing um, emergency services people that need to get into that building, but actually controlling the importance of their safety is far more important than recovering people that are already de deceased. And so it's just managing emotion. Yeah, you know, I, I think that was one of the things that really made the book stand out for me is is that it's a human touch. You know, it could have been a very dry textbook on in this situation you do this, in this situation you do that. Whereas, you know, you, you do go into the humanity of it. And, and one of my favourite chapters in the, or sections in the book, and I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but where you're talking about uh, an old man and his life savings. That I mean, obviously that in itself must have been emotional without giving away too many spoilers. Tell me about that one. Yeah, uh, so yeah, th this this followed all the the, the riots in two thousand eleven, and you know, we were we were in fourteen different dangerous structures at the same time right across London. Um, there was the furniture store where you got a very famous image of the woman jumping out the window. That was that was dealt with by the um, the, the landowner, the, the the freeholder of that premises. But we were in um, another part of Croydon uh, in a, a, a huge parade of buildings that that were residents to you know, or, or the, the residences of um, countless families um, that lived up that street. And there was one gentleman who lived um, above and behind a, a, a public house, which had been uh, completely um, taken out by the fire. And um, he, he came over to me one day, despite my best advice to all my team to avoid, you know, engaging with the public when we're when we're really focusing on trying to remediate a dangerous structure. He came over to me. The, the district surveyor for the um, for the response had said he should speak to me. So I, you know, sort of said, well, you know, how can I help? And and it transpired that um, he had lost his um, life savings in the fire, but that wasn't his primary concern. He'd also lost his cat, his beloved cat, and. Um, he said to me, "Could first and foremost, could I find his cat? And secondly, if it was at all possible, could we have a good look around, see if we could find his savings?" Uh, this gentleman had just lost his wife, and he was in a, yeah, you know, he, he just lost the, the shirt off of his back too. Um, and I suppose his only his only comfort in life was his was his his pet. And um, the long and the short of it, Mark, after you know, toying with that um, task and actually spending. A lot more time than we would have ordinarily spent looking through debris, which, quite frankly, given uh, the view and there are there are views of that in the book, you would never imagine that it was at all possible to recover a small tin from an old kitchen that was located on the second floor when everything is pretty much in a pile of three foot of debris on the ground um, somewhere below, you know, where a roof used to 
stand and uh, or, or travel. And so the, the, the great part of the, the, the story, the, the sort of the, the lovely ending to it was that we did manage to find these savings, which apart from some very charred edges, um, was there in totality and he was able to, to get that to the bank. Um, he hadn't used the bank previously because he didn't think they were safe, which was kind of ironic really. Um, and we, um, uh, furthermore, he did have a good idea where his cat might be located, and we did manage to find his cat too, which we returned to him. So he was, he was extremely grateful to be able to at least put some closure on uh, on that tragic part of that further tragic part of um, of it. But um, he was also eternally grateful. Um, it's an unusual um, thing to 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 be able to do, but we 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 managed it on that occasion. One of the key drivers of this book, obviously, is Grenfell, uh, and you were the first civilian to f set foot inside the Grenfell Tower after, after that horrible uh, blaze. Uh, we'll get to the, the details of that in a second, but one of the things that stood out for me, and I'm not going to try and compare my experience with yours, but I, I went up to uh, the Didcot Power Station the day after the incident, uh, and four guys were, were tragically killed, um, and I was literally going from TV interview to TV interview, so I was busy the entire day, probably a 12-hour day. And what struck me, and, and you've done it also in the book, is the fact that even though you're busy, even though you're focused on something, your brain has this uncanny knack of storing away other details. Like, I, I you know, I remember conversations with with a policeman and, and an old woman delivering sandwiches to keep the policeman safe and warm and all that. And yours is, is very much like that. I mean, you 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 highlighted things like messages on, on packs of sandwiches and... Bizarrely, um, the, the songs of Bob Marley. Did you actually make a mental note of those, or, or, or a physical note, or did they just come back to you while you were writing the book? They, they, they were, um, they were parts of the the response that, that stayed with me. And there's many, many more, Mark. To be honest with you, and some, some would be wrong to um, to reflect on. Um, others I could. Um, uh, but I didn't. I didn't want to lose the reader at the same time. But yeah, there were moments in there. Uh, I think. I think going into a, a building, any any building, whether it's Grenfell or any building that um, that is undermined or, and, and about to collapse or, or just suffered some you know, huge fire and uh, people are trying to get to parts of it um, and, and need your help, your your actual awareness is quite profound of, of everything, of every noise. You know, we in our industry we always talk about the building talking to us. Well, it's the first thing that you're thinking when you're in a dangerous structure. Trust me, it's more, it's more profound than it is ever when you're on a demolition job. But when that building's talking to you and you can hear every creak and every conversation and you know a, a knock and drop and something falling away, something falling down, um, you, it, you sort of come out and you reflect on all of these things, particularly the things that actually give you, a, you know, an emotional sense, uh, as it did the day that I was, you know. The, the, the point of the Bob Marley was we were in uh, USAR had um, propped some of the floors of the building um, around a, a particular column that, that had failed and they needed their props just in case they were called to a, a, a other incident so we had to swap their props out so, you know a cluster of about 20 props need to be taken out and a, and a new cluster of props replacing them and uh, I'd, I'd planned it and, and got ready to do this piece of work on a Sunday morning. And um, as I sort of stood in that, you know, 13th floor window, looking out at the A40, all these vehicles going going about their business, thankful that they're not in that building or weren't in that building, I should say. Um, Bob Marley started playing from a from a garage some somewhere down below, within 100 yards of the building, but at the, at the highest volume, and it's telling me 
don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And of course, it wasn't a message to me, it was a message to the community, but that's how they were communicating. And um, you, you can't forget that kind of thing. Um, it takes. It goes back to that that thing you were saying about emotion as well. I, I and, and this this wasn't a dangerous structure at all. But I, I remember visiting a, a, a tower block that was about to be imploded, and obviously they'd cleared all the people out, you know, months in advance and everything else. But walking through, you know, the the uh, green area around that building, there were discarded children's toys, and that that is so poignant. You must have seen an awful lot of that in and around Grenfell. Certainly, I did, Mark. Yeah. Um... Yeah, unfortunately, I did. Uh, you know, when when I went in uh, on the, the Friday, there was an awful lot of that around the place, and um, you know, that none of that's reflected in the book. Um, that that just carries with me for the rest of my life. But you know, none of that's in the book. It's uh, uh, just a, a, a very very surreal thing to have experienced. During your response to that and you know that and other emergencies you, you obviously work very closely with other emergency services and we'll come on to one in, in particular in a second but who are they and, and you know what is the their usual role when they're not dealing with with tragedies like Grenfell and, and that kind of thing um, so we're, we're all we're all aware of the emergency services we're aware of you know fire police and ambulance that's that's common commonplace in in society now but there are there are many more departments that that just appear and and you know i i only find out about them when it when i get my first experience of working with them but you know the, the uk is protected by a, a process called resilience and resilience you can find out about resilience online at, at um, gov.uk just type in resilience.gov.uk and and, it, and it'll explain the purpose of all of the different emergency services working together in an incident like something as tragic as Grenfell, or a you know a, a, an incident where we've got you know some severe adverse weather, uh, or something of a you know more sinister nature with with terrorism, um, and so resilience coordinates how all of these different departments and different emergency services and consultants and specialists come together, local authorities, government, uh, and so on. Um, but at Grenfell, obviously, um, initially, the, the, the fire services are responsible um, for the building, for the response. Um, but you have USAR uh, working with them, which is um, Urban Search and Rescue, where you know these, these individuals are fire services trained individuals that go to another level of training. Uh, that was brought about by, um, by 9-11. Uh, our guys were taken to America and trained in Texas about you know other skills to access buildings that have been undermined, compromised in some way, to either find and recover trapped individuals or or bring out uh, deceased safely. Um, so USAR is a, a, a very important part of uh, of our response there. And then you've got obviously you know the likes of the HSE uh, are in attendance and. You know, HSE at Grenfell would would have obviously had a, a, a great interest in what well, as they as they did at Didcot as they have at you know, any any major incident like that as to why and how on earth that could have possibly happened. Um, but furthermore, they're also there to coordinate a a, a, a team approach, you know, a, 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 and enable conversations um, to happen. And they were really really effective um, at Grenfell. You know, some really really good people. And then you've got departments you know you obviously you've got 
uh, the Met Police doing what the police would do with the investigation and safe recovery and protecting the, the, the sort of the boundaries and what have you. Then you've got groups called DVI, um, which is uh, Disaster Victim Identification. So these are specially trained Metropolitan Police officers that are trained to go and find victims um, in, in the most you know, devastating uh, environments. And the team that were at Grenfell had just only just returned from Manchester. You'd had the London Bridge uh, incident. Um, and so the, the DVI team were a huge part. They worked and responded to all the requirements of the coroner. Um, but they're a team of elite police officers, basically. Um, and then you've got you've got Hart, um, which is um, hazardous area response team, um, which is effectively ambulance paramedics that are trained to work within the danger zone, as opposed to working at the perimeter of a danger zone where USAR or fire services would bring victims and injured persons to the boundary, HART are trying to work within the danger zone. So they've got the same skills and awarenesses of USAR um, to work within those kind of zones. So you've got, you've got those as, as responders and then you've got the, the local authorities uh, that take responsibility for coordinated information back up into uh, COBRA, you know, Cabinet Office Boardroom, um, which is a silver and gold response team that report back on, up into into local authority and government. There's a lot. One of the things that, that really stood out with through that section of the book, and, and, and when you were saying that, is the fact that you know you're, you're talking about people that are are highly trained, highly responsible. You know, government linked. You know, they are figures of authority. But to a degree, when when you and your team arrive on site, you become at least partly a leader of that. I mean that that speaks speaks volumes for you and your team, but I think it speaks volumes for the the skills that we don't often talk about within the demolition industry as well. Absolutely, and you know I make a point in the in the book about what you can expect on different types of category of of dangerous structure. You know, you, you've got category one dangerous structure, which is you know just as simple as a a chimney that could fall off the top of a roof or a garden wall that could blow over in the wind and it's an observation of a member of the public or the local authority and you'd go there because it's still considered a dangerous structure. A dangerous structure is when it can affect the public. You get a, 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 a category two which could be you know, an explosion, a fire, a, a significant collapse, a significant dangerous structure and then cat three is where it's a groundfell, it's an act of terrorism, it's a major disaster. And when you turn up to that major disaster, even like the first one, the Cat 1, it's the guy's on his way, or the team are on their way, and you'll walk into that room, whether there's one person there or 30 people there, and they're all around a circle, and they look at you and go, right, you're here now, what are we going to do? And you've got to manage that pressure. You've got to, you've got to anticipate it, and you've got to be able to manage that pressure, because it's significant, as you can imagine. And that, I think, is, is the point that I, I was trying to say eloquently, you know, that you've got all these highly trained people, but there will be times when they look to the hairy-ass demolition man to make things right, which, again, I just think precisely now, speaks really volumes not. for the demolition fraternity. Absolutely. It really does. It really does. Um, you've been very actively involved in the formation of the NEST. For those that don't know, and they will if they read the book, what is the NEST? Who's involved and what basically is its function? So NEST um, is the 
um, National Emergency Services Support Task Force. Uh, we have come up with, we're working with fire services. They've got an acronym for, never, for everything. They wouldn't say toilet. There'll be an acronym for toilet. They, they, they've got they've got one for everything. So we, Nest is um, is a is a mechanism that um, fills a void in in time that when a blue light is uh, is called to a, a dangerous structure or an incident, um, obviously the blue light is the first point of call. The blue light goes out. What follows closely behind, but never superficially behind, at times, is um, the local authority's ability to respond. So in the dead of night, there's an explosion, there's a big fire, a, a storage facility, and a storage facility is next to Network Rail. As that's raging away, the calls from the blue light will be made to the uh, local authority, and the local authority will have a list of people that are on call, um, and they'll ring them at home in the dead of night and say, look, there's an incident over at this place. Can you get over there? Emergency services have got possession of the site at the moment, um, but we need to be prepared to take on that responsibility when the emergency services are finished. And what you could have, you know, that could be a, there could be a two week, that's uh, two week, a two hour delay in the emergency services seeing somebody from the local authority. And in that period, they could have a need for structural advice from a structural engineer or a demolition engineer you know and when we're talking about dangerous structures the, the the relevance the importance of a demolition engineer somebody that actually understands how a building will react not necessarily why it's standing up you know the foundations are this big because the, the calculation tells me x actually fundamentally why they're standing up how a building will react if we take out that part of the building or if that part of the building has already collapsed or exploded away and that period is a really important period in the emergency services ability to um, get to survivors get to people trapped or diseased or protect local infrastructure and so they need to be able to, they need to be able to call on somebody instantly to bridge that gap and it could be talking to somebody down secure communication um, networks or it could be saying, can you get here, you know, foot to the metal and, and get here as quick as you can and give us some uh, help and advice. And that's really working with the incident commander. And, and if he looks at you and says, where do you think that building is going to go? And you say directly towards that infrastructure, he might then make some decisions to, to protect that infrastructure or at least shut it down. Um, without the benefit of that demolition engineer in that incident room, uh, or in that command center, um, he's not able to make that decision confidently because it's not his skill set. Uh, his skill set's tackling fire, not necessarily you know predicting where a building might end up or the implications of what's going on with the fire as it is at the moment. So Nest um, came about to bridge the gap. Um, now, of course, elephant in the room, whenever we ask a consultant to, to do something, um, it is money. And it's, it's been a problem for the emergency services with funding and how funding works for them uh, to get that kind of support up to now. And it, it occurred to me that, you know, there's some good folks out there that wouldn't mind giving a little bit back. that have got great skills um, and, 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 and ability that could actually give that pro bono to the emergency services, make themselves available to them. You know, we've, we've been responsible for this now for about 18 months, Mark, and, and the phone rang once. It could ring three times next week, um, and it's it's actually then about you know joining a, a, a provision 
there's criteria to join. There's, there's, there's criteria about the quality and the, uh, and the experience, competence of the individuals that are in it. Um, but there's also an awful lot of, of credibility to be selected to be a, a member of NEST. And so while my, my colleague Mark Smith and I have, have got it off the ground with Dave O'Neill from London Fire Services, um, Julian Birch from Michael Barclay Partnership Engineers, uh, and, uh, and sadly Jim King, who was the district surveyor for uh, Grenfell uh, and sadly passed away just a couple of months ago now. Uh, suddenly. Um, we, we got this formally off the ground and it's now very much part of emergency services response uh, as a formal uh, as a formal provision. We are formally a blue light provider. Um, so we are, we've you know, launched this in the southeast for now um, and next year we're going to take it national and it's it's amazing actually that the, the book is really, you know, the conversation around it has been positive but the book's actually stimulated um, quite a bit of interest as well. And, and I've, I've even had two inquiries on it today uh, from engineers that would like to be part of it, um, which is which is absolutely fantastic. Um, we've, we, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, but um, it's very encouraging. So that's, that's what it's all about. One of the things that, that, that really stood out for me is the fact that you your job is doubly hard, I would imagine. When uh, an average demolition, you know, somebody has plenty of time to look over it and find out what, what's what, and then they also have time to deal with it. Yours, you have no clue what you're dealing with, and you're generally working, uh, to, at least to a large degree, against the clock. How do, how do you go about that? Uh, Mark, it's not. You, you, you talk it up, mate. We, 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 you know, I think we're all good at our job and, and we're, we're, we're good in our comfort zone. I couldn't do yours. I couldn't do yours, mate. Good, you know, hats off to you. Um, it's just it's just training, isn't it? It's just experience. You know, your conversation around supervisors and, um, you know, how long it takes to become a supervisor, I think it's all driven by, by experience. And if a supervisor is good and they've got the aptitude for it, there's no reason why they shouldn't hold a card quicker than five years. You get used to and get you get good at what you're good at. Um, and it's as simple as that. So, yeah, listen, I'm not going to take any praise for having a lot of when and, and turning up and being able to make decisions. You've either got it or you haven't, I suppose. I've got to ask about your wife, who is doesn't get a, a huge mention in the book. She gets a couple, doesn't get a huge amount, but she's obviously a, a very key character. How does she cope with watching you drive off towards another emergency situation? She's going to love that she's got a mention anyway, Mark. Thank you for that. Um, how does she? She's not very good with it, um, but she's also very supportive. Uh, she's a she's a, a a real warrior. I mean, to to put <laughs> funny, we we were just talking about Nest um, last weekend. Uh, Mark and I were asked to go to uh, London Fire Services head offices in Union Street in London to give a talk to some engineers that are responsible in ISAR, which is the UK's. Um, international capability to respond to a, you know, a, an incident and go and support a nation in a, in, a, in, a, in a desperate place, you know, like Haiti following earthquakes or whatever. So ISAR is International Search and Rescue. And there's these engineers that are prepared to just drop things at the, the, you know, the drop of a hat and jump on a plane and get out there and, 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 and work with fire services for up to 28 days in isolation. And I was, you know, I've been, I've been pestered um, about joining that, but it's not one I've even bothered bringing home, Mark, because the answer on that one 
It's going to be a very firm no, but I'm, I'm all right in the UK. You haven't written this book to fund your retirement. In fact, the proceeds aren't going to you at all, are they? Tell me more. No, they're not. Um, so all the all the proceeds from the book are going to charity. Um, our company uh, were, were kind enough to support me and uh, and pay for all of the printing. Um, so we, we got that through our business. And then all of the sales um, goes to charity, um, 72% of which goes to Grenfell uh, Charities and good causes in the local community. Um, and the other 28% will go to Mates in Mind, which, which I'm sure you know is a, a phenomenal charity uh, aligned to the construction industry that looks after our lot. You know, our lot, our lot that uh, you, you, you said Harry asked earlier. So I'll say it, you know, we're perceived to be the hairy ass guy, we should be tough, we should be able to go down the pub and, you know, walk off the duck's back and we shouldn't worry about things. But there's a ton of stuff that goes on outside of work that we, as business owners and, uh, and managers and, you know, responsible parties some supervisors and so on, we don't know what's going on in people's minds. And there is a charity there that does give some phenomenal support to people in the construction industry. So we've got, you know, there's two charities that benefit from it. Um, but of course, you won't know where to buy it unless I say it's at www.dangerous-structure.com where all the money goes to charity. Your team, the, the guys around you, and I'm not I'm not talking specifically here about Grenfell, but I would imagine that was probably the toughest of the lot. But what, what checks do you have in place to make sure that they're doing okay? Because you know some of the things that they're seeing and having to encounter... You can't train for that, can you? Experience, I'm sure, builds up a, a, a thick skin, much the same as it does with emergency services. But you know, do you do your guys go through counselling, or you know, do you put your arm around at the end of, end of the day and make sure they're all ho- okay? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, you, we we can't help but refer to Grenfell and the experience of Grenfell, where you know we had 20, 25 guys turn up on day one from across our, you know business uh, at that time they were just you know randomly selected because they've experienced dangerous structures before and said you know there's you know we, we need we need to get a team over at Grenfell are you prepared to go and they said yes now there's a there's a there's a bit of bravado sometimes saying yes in front of your mates and then actually when you land on a you know on an incident and you're either looking up at 24 floors or you're looking at a building that's collapsed or you're looking down a, a trench that's collapsed and somebody's lost their life that that changes that's a bit of a that's a bit of a moment where you go right this is real and the only thing that i've found that i can successfully do is actually make you know some some the right people available and they're just over there if you need them but you don't need to 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 do this you know you've got to put your hand up if you don't feel comfortable you've got to come and talk to me and my colleagues you know that you know as i mentioned mark a moment ago we we always make ourselves available to them and as managers i think fundamentally we can't ask anybody to do what we wouldn't be prepared to do ourselves of course but equally we can't shoehorn somebody into something they're not comfortable about and um we, we ask and ask and ask, and we ask privately, we ask in a forum where we're all together. Uh, it's, it's probably the most common thing that we discuss because it is a, it is a hellish task. Um, and, and if you're not that in the right frame of mind to be able to deal with it, then you really mustn't be there. And there's nothing, there's no shame in that. You don't get a, you don't get a black mark, I mean, for goodness sakes. Uh, and we, we sort of make that very, very clear, but um, 
we've, we've just got an incredible bunch of people that work with us and um and fortunately everybody's everybody's been able to deal with it really well Paul, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure, almost as much of a pleasure as, as reading the book. And I, I don't want to be seen to be blowing smoke up anyone's rear end, but I, I really did. I mean, I, I read that in two sittings, um, sort of set aside a, a part of a Friday and a Saturday and just absolutely rattled through it. And I've been back through it several times since. I've, I've recommended to anyone in the industry that will listen. I've, I've recommended it to people that aren't in the industry that will listen as well. Um, it really is a fantastic piece of work. And I... I, I commend you for doing it and I, I'd recommend it to anyone that's, that's watching this or listening to this and, and particularly the, the very fact that the money is going to charity I think is just an astonishing thing um, so hats off to you well thank you Mark and, and you know thank you very much for one showing an interest two actually you know taking your, your weekend away and, and spending the time reading it the feedback you've given me has been so encouraging and um, and, and the support you've shown in, in, in doing this interview and, and you know using your website to to promote it I'm, I'm eternally grateful as, as the charities will be too um, but if any of the you know the listeners uh, or, or people that are viewing this want to raise any sort of queries uh, I'm, I'm very happy to help anybody that's got uh, some some questions about it so thank you